1: Hello everyone, and welcome back to New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I am your host, Crawford Gribbin, and today my guest is Paula McQuaid. Paula is Professor of English at DePaul University in Chicago, and she is the author of Catechisms and Women's Writing in 17th Century England, recently published by Cambridge University Press. Paula, congratulations on the book, and welcome to the show.
0: Oh, thank you, Crawford. It's lovely to be here.
1: It's great to talk to you. Before we talk about the book, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, perhaps how you got to where you are in terms of your career, and what the background to the book is.
0: Yes, thank you. Um, well, I, as you mentioned, I'm in a department of English literature, and so um, my dissertation written um, a while ago was actually on Renaissance drama, um, so quite different. I worked on religion and Renaissance drama, but still sort of more interested in traditional literary forms. Um, I'm fortunate to be I, at a university where I was able to get tenure Fairly early in my career and fairly easily um, at that time they didn 't have we don 't have like they have in England exorbitant research requirements every year and so what that did actually is it gave me freedom to pursue um what I was really interested in and freedom to sort of think outside the box a little bit, a little bit of think up outside disciplinary boxes so um I moved away from the focus on drama sort of follow my true interest, which was sort of early women's writing, but also more broadly religious writing and religious thought in the period. So it's a sort of happy story of freedom, institutional freedom, um, allowing me to pursue interests that I really love.
1: It's funny you mentioned institutional freedom because many people would not associate the form of the catechism <laughs> with that particular theme. So how did you come to think about catechisms?
0: That is actually a very uh, personal it has a very personal um, beginning in that. So after I had, to, after I received tenure, I had uh, three children in four years and very, very busy time. And one of the things that occurred to me, um, so I would be reading to my children at night and I was really sort of blown away. I came to motherhood slightly late, and I was blown away about how it was nothing like I had come to expect. I mean, I had such joy and pleasure, and I experienced such love in reading to my children um, and teaching them how to read. And it just occurred to me, it's really that very personal experience, that none of that was reflected in the literature on early modern women as writers and early modern women as mothers and as teachers. So I thought, well. It can't be true, you know, that early modern women didn't also enjoy and sort of benefit from this experience. And so it's really that intensely personal sort of realisation that sparked my interest in recovering uh, this body of work.
1: That's fascinating. Now, De Paul you mentioned their dominant themes or the consensus within the scholarship surrounding Mm -hmm. early modern women's writing. It's it's a relatively new field, isn't it? Maybe in the last, what, 30, 40 years the yes. recovery of interest in early modern women. How has how this field developed? Why, why did it start? How has it, it developed over time? And do you have any sense as to where it is today?
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, thank you. So I was fortunate to be at the sort of, when I was in graduate school, so my first year in sort of graduate school, was when the field was taking off. And the early field was very much dominated, It very much reflects the sort of first wave feminism that it emerged from. Um, so the concern then was on finding a history of early modern women writers in literary genres. So you were interested in finding women poets and women playwrights. And then also there was a definite interest in finding women whose work was somehow subversive, right? Subverted patriarchy, th- sort of fought, you know, fought the power. Um, and that sort of played itself out for, I would say, from 1990 to sort of about 2000, but it's still, especially the concern, um, so the concern with literary genres has, I would say in the past 15 years in the field, begun to uh, lessen people. There's been a lot of great work on women's writing and manuscript and sort of thinking about the difference between manuscript and um, more literary form, or manuscript and print. Um, And there's been more attention sort of paid to sort of generic diversity. What has still lasted, I think, um, is a concern with women, finding women who were either subversive. And then there's also a focus that's linked with that. If they're not subversive, then you want women who are sort of in powerful positions. So you want women, you know, Catherine Parr, Queen Elizabeth. And I mean, and that's all wonderful work. It's just my feeling as the book evolved was I say in the um, epilogue that one of the things basically I've tried to do is to resurrect or re-figure a genre that's been hidden, a genre of women's writing that's been hidden in plain sight. Um, It was always there. It's just because of the way the discipline was constructed, no one was interested in looking at non-elite women who wrote in non-literary forms and who seemed to be happy mothers at the same time. It just, no one was interested in it, but the texts were readily available.
1: It's striking that you use the word finding so much uh, in that last answer, Paula, because so much of the work that continues uh, in this field is still about that basic discovery, isn't it? There's a It's a kind of an archaeology, a kind of unpicking or uncovering of these forgotten voices. Um, yes. So, you're based in the literature department I am. but but you're finding catechisms as a as a way of releasing or uncovering or rescuing a very mm-hmm. important early modern woman's voice why why catechisms what, what is this literary form for anyone oh. who's not familiar with it
0: so catechisms are um they also have a bad rap because of, so let me just answer the question directly. It's a form, um, question and answer. And in the, the manus, or the books, the printed text that we have, they can range from the quite simple. So they might open, you know, what is God? God is a spirit. He is unknowable, um, et cetera. And so there's a basic, there's a basic catechism, um, known as the ABC with the catechism. Um, Shakespeare learned to read from this. And it's a sort of simple um, way of presenting Christian doctrine in question and answer forms. The parent or the minister would ask the question and then the child would repeat the sort of in, in its basic form, the child would then repeat the memorized answer. Um, But what's actually true about catechisms is catechisms are quite varied, actually. So you have basic catechisms like the ABC with the catechism and even more simple ones designed for sort of very early children, four, five, six. But then as a form, you also have intermediate catechisms, um, which might be on questions about The nature of God. And then you'll have advanced question catechisms, you know, what is the nature of the beatific vision? Or how can we be sure, you know, um, on what basis can our assurance um, be determined? So it's a very, it's a variety of forms, both in terms of the questions that are asked, the content that is covered. Um, And then finally, and so, and if your readers or listeners are interested, um Pilgrim's Progress actually has a very interesting dialogue when Prudence di- um, questions Christian's wife, Christiana, She and she asks to question the children on their how they've been taught. She sort of goes through and gives a sort of graded forms of the catechism. She asks the youngest child very simple questions, and then the oldest child gets questions about sort of the nature of the resurrection. Um, so it gives a sense of what early modern practice, the variety of early modern practice. Um, in catechesis. The second thing I would say is that catechisms were, in their design, um, memorization was the first step. There are a lot of manuals beginning in the early 17th century, which are designed to help families, I mean, this is family religion, help families sort of teach their children. And what you see there is you see a lot of sort of the, 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 Minister, oftentimes it's a local minister, sort of trying to teach what we would call critical thinking to the, to the parents. Well, if you ask, what is the nature of God? Then you ask, how do you know that? And then the child's expected to find the biblical verse. So it's actually a very, um, comprehensive educational program for people who wouldn't have had the benefit of an advanced education. Um, in schools, so it's home based education in the, in that sense at sometimes quite a sophisticated level and the final thing I would say, Crawford, is that there are many manuscripts, and this is another area which still needs to be tapped, many, many manuscripts in which we have um parents who have written in the manuscripts of the catechism, um, and they are enacting what they have been told to do. They are enacting this product, this uh, process of critical thinking. So they will say, you know, they'll have a question and they'll say, they'll write in the margins, how do you know this? Or important, you know, what is the biblical verse? Find a biblical verse. So we have evidence that they are, in fact, trying to put these ministerial injunctions about how to conduct their, their domestic catechesis into practice.
1: Now you used there, probably the word enacting, and you've described catechisms as a kind of scripted speech. Is there a way in which we can equate these texts to dramatic texts?
0: Yes, I think um, I think very much, and I think as anyone who has been in, I think the analogy—it's more than an analogy. I mean, it's actually um, I think it's very much how they were performed in a household, you would have. And just as if you've been in a performance, there's a great variety of room for improvisation, um, for sort of response. I think it's very much that. And I think a lot of the joy that you get from a performance, from a communal performance of a play, is a lot of what you're looking at when you get um, when you get accounts of catechesis. Oftentimes, if you look at the early modern record, you will get um, people saying much joy, much comfort, much, um, much Pleasure—I don't think they use the word pleasure—much comfort from this lesson that we had. So I think it was very enjoyable, perhaps very lively, um, and it was also a time, you know, in a in a performance, just like in a play performance, um, you get sort of there are moments of moving off script and the attention of giving one person giving actual attention to the other, and I think that's also a lot of enjoyment from it in this dialogue, the sort of attention that you pay to the other person. There's also, I should say, um, evidence in catechisms of its oral performance. So you'll have, there's written textual sort of print evidence where the mother will say, speak it high and in a loud voice, you know, (laughs) or be clear. Or you have evidence, even in print catechisms, you have evidence of, you know, and he will, they'll talk about the creed seated at the right hand of God, and the mother will say of God, the mother will say, what is meant by God's right hand? And the child's supposed to say it's spoken for our capacity. You know, I mean, so there's a lot of sort of moments in which you can. I think what we are talking about there, Crawford, are textual markers of an oral performance. And so just like in a play script, you see textual um, residue. It's a it's a textual uh, re- remnant of an oral performance. I think that's exactly what you have in a catechism as well.
1: Hmm. Now, you, your book really brings this to life with energy uh, and vivacity. Tell tell us about the character of household religion then. What was it like uh, to be in a situation where these texts were being memorised or used or performed? And also, what, is, what does your study tell us about the role of women in household religion in this period?
0: Um, I think household religion, and I know there is a um, considerable and growing body of work on it. I think it's still, though... I still think it's on we have not plumbed its depths. I think for um Protestants, especially the hotter sort of Protestants, I think what we as moderns have a hard time understanding about it is that it was immensely pleasurable, immensely joyful, and a source because and the joy stems from directing your will towards the study of something, the ultimate good, right. But also communal intellectual activity communal study and communal, again, I think your analogy of a play rehearsal is excellent communal performance. Um, And, um, yeah, the attention in a a world which as much as one can recreate, probably like our own, had many demands upon, you know, parental attention. It was a time in which parents enacted with their children and interacted with their children in a sort of one-on-one you know, in an intense basis. And I think that was incredibly important. So I think household religion um, has been studied, but could even benefit from more study. But also because, as you mentioned, um, the importance of women, women played a crucial role in household education. Um, Paul's, you know, the dictum, uh, the Pauline injunction, which prevents women from speaking in church did not apply to women speaking women's role in the household. And so women had a great deal of freedom and responsibility and what we would call empowerment as educators within the household. They were responsible for teaching their child how to read in many cases. They were responsible for teaching them the basis of the Christian faith and for continuing that education. So I think if we're really interested, and and so the catechisms that I talk about in the book are all examples of women who either there's some examples, like you mentioned, um, Catherine Thomas, where she records both. I mean, she's a great example. She's a woman who lives in a little village on the Welsh border. Um, and she's got uh, Miss Lenny and she's got two catechisms in there. One, probably she used to educate her children. And it's very um it's the best so you've got questions it's written probably it's the it's the sort of type of catechism written for people between the age of 10 and 13 and there are all sorts of questions designed to appeal to a child's love of comparisons right so they'll say who was the strongest man right how many uh how many who was the weakest man how many uh children did uh, Elijah or died because they called Elijah a bald head, you know, questions that how many, who was the strongest man, questions that are designed to appeal to children and also test their biblical knowledge. Um, you have that. And then what you have in another in the same book, you have a catechism that she wrote based upon. She was a Church of England Protestant, but she used the catechetical form to uh, record her engagement with a Catholic devotional book. So it's a capacious genre that what you see in that manuscript, I would argue, is both the sort of importance of catechesis within the household and as mothers educating their children, and then the way in which mothers could use that education and use that experience to sort of, as a as a vehicle for authorship, to sort of become authors in their own right and engage with other works.
1: So it's fun. It's a fun time that there's quizzes, as in Catherine Thomas' yeah. catechism, It's also a deeply serious moment of reflection and and teaching as well. And one of the ways in which we can see the seriousness of that, as your book shows so well, is that these women, or many of these women, are not content with the available printed catechisms, but want to compose their own. Mm -hmm. These women are writers, but these women are theologians as well. Where are they getting their theological ideas from?
0: That was one of, I don't want to say the surprises, but uh, one of the lessons I think of the study is how theologically sophisticated many of these women um, were. I think there's the two most, I think theologically sophisticated, uh, Lady Catherine Fitzwilliam, who's related to Grace Mildmay and um, her husband was at court in the sort of uh, evangelical Protestant wing uh, she is an, a fairly sophisticated theological thinker. She writes a treatise on assurance, um, and it's in catechetical form. She also writes a treatise on affliction, in which she's really trying to think through, okay, how can I sort of reconcile these setbacks that I have had and my family have had has had with this idea of a loving God and being one of his elect. She talks about, you know, um, and they're very particularized to her experience. So you can say, how do we know that, you know, how can we be, how can we endure the affliction? She talks about gout and other sort of, um, you know, sicknesses. And then she'll respond, well, God gives us good friends, good doctors, soft beds, he's treating us like a physician. But you can really see her trying to use these available theological terms to sort of Think through the problem of affliction. Um, the other one who's really quite an innovative theologian and using the catechetical form is Mary Carey. Um, she, the deeper Mary Carey was a fifth monarchist, so she's writing in the 1640s. Her first work, I believe, appears in 1648, or her one of her, her, her most monumental work. And she's writing as a member of the Fifth Monarchist. It's been suggested that she was one of the founding members of the Fifth Monarchist. But she is really a person where the more I plumb her theological knowledge, the more I'm very much surprised by the depth of her reading. And and let me give you one example. In the preface to um, the book, The Resurrection of the Witnesses, which she constructs so that it has catechisms within it. I mean, I think it's very interesting. You see like these other writers, the book is not a catechism entirely, but it has many inset catechisms. So, again, speaking from a literary sense, you can see her as consciously playing with the form. But um, she also she mentions I, she she has a preface when she says, I'm not writing as a prophet. I say I have no direct inspiration from God. I'm writing as, you know, my own sort of expositor of revelation of scripture. And why that's significant is she recognizes that the sort of one way in which women were normally sort of encouraged to speak within a congregation was if they were prophets, right? Because then the idea is a prophet doesn't isn't bound by the normal prescriptions against female speech because God is inspiring the prophet and God, you know, doesn't care who the vessel is. God will speak where God wants to speak. But she explicitly denies that and claims authority as a sort of independent exegete. So I think what you see there is is a sort of a depth of knowledge. And, and then she mentions biblical women. And the interesting thing, the person who keeps coming up in many of these discussions um, about women and catechesis, because catechesis is really about teaching, um, is Mary Magdalene. And both Mary Carey and Catherine Thomas, the woman who lives on the um, Welsh border, are very interested in Mary Magdalene as a sort of resurrection witness, and perhaps as the first resurrection witness. And resurrection witnesses were also gospel witnesses who were, you know, in the, in the account in Mark, they say, go and teach, go and tell the other apostles what I have told you. And so they're very interested in seeing her as a figure, as a teacher, who has not prophetically inspired.
1: I think this is one of the things about your book that really struck me, is the way in which it opens up the extent to which many of these early modern new religious movements, we might use that terminology, were were, were actually very open to to women's Mm -hmm. voices. Now, you mentioned the fifth monarchist there, Paula. Could you just remind us who they were? If we know anything about them, it may just be their attempted coups in the yeah. early 1660s but there's there's a kind of a theological depth behind them as well along with these sometimes extraordinary prophetic claims they wanted to make
0: it is um it's i i see um and this is something that i'm increasingly interested in the fifth monarchists i, I actually in the case of Kerry, um, the person I know the best, who's a fifth monarchist. So l- let me give you the sort of overview first. They were a group that um, a civil war group developed during the civil war. And they're often talked about in relationship to the levelers because me- they had a sort of program for social reform. Um, they wanted to make universities free. They wanted the famous example of Mary Kerry. She wants to develop a postal system and then use the taxes to sort of Pay ministers. They want to get rid of tithes. They want to help the poor, right? So many of their concerns dovetail with other sort of more political movements during um, the Civil War, but they were not they were not exclusively a political movement. What they were was a they had a belief in the sort of that biblical history based on the reading of Revelation and Daniel's and Daniel that um, biblical history could be divided into sort of five. Monarchies, and they believe that the fifth monarchy would inaugurate the reign of King Jesus, and that would inaugurate a thousand year rule. After which would sort of be this, you know, this version of the end of the end times. Um, but there was, as much as I can discern, a participatory eschatology. So that means that they believed that they had to sort of enact these social reforms to sort of uh, prepare the sort of uh, beginning reign of King Jesus, who would then come and rule. So um, it's a very, and so that's the background for the movement. What I found with my work with Mary Carey is they're very much coming out of a domestic um, religion um, environment. Many of them, in fact, most of them, are not formally trained theologians. Carey mentions that her own training um, it's very, very interesting. Her own training happened when she was 16 and her mom, she was evidently living with her mom, had a revelation. And so Carrie began to study intensely the books of Revelation and um, Daniel. So it's her. She she cites home based training. And through a lot of these people who are associated with the fifth monarchists, they're either citing home based training or they'll they're, they're citing community church-based sort of communal scriptural study as the basis for their um, theology. So, but and the only thing I would add to that, which I think was was implicit in your question, is that um, they're really quite energetic and smart. Um, they're not, so, and you see this best with Carrie. Um, I don't know if you've read Carrie or any of the listeners have read Carrie, but she's she's both incredibly rewarding and incredibly frustrating because she isn't as an, as a person who's not formally trained, um, it's not a very disciplined presentation. At the same time, she's incredibly smart and she knows a great deal. There's a lot of study, um, which underlies her sort of reading. So I think, um, she rewards, and the, She's someone who I would just say, the more you probe with her, the more you look, oh, I don't know how she knows that, right? Or how does she get that? So she's actually quite, I think, sophisticated. Um, in her, or ex- she has quite extensive scriptural and theological knowledge.
1: Now, is it true to say that Mary Carey, I, mean, I was really struck by your chapter in Carey, but is it true to say that Mary Carey is not writing specifically for children in her catechism? No, she's not.
0: Thank you. And that's an excellent point. One of the things I try to say in the book, or one of the things I'm interested in, is that catechisms began as a form, right, um, through which it's this sort of licensed or allowed way for women to think through and think about and teach religion um, and and religious doctrine. And what you see is, oh, especially over the course of the 17th century, what you see is women are increasingly using that training, that home-based training, to sort of venture into sort of religious and political controversies, right? So they're taking something that they're allowed to do, that they have experience and sort of confidence in doing, and then it's giving them the confidence to sort of venture into areas in which women weren't supposed to venture at all. Um, I mentioned Dorothy Birch earlier. She publishes her catechism because she disagrees with the local royalist Laudian minister. You know, so she's intervening in sort of a debate happening in 1640s, almost over by the 1640s, about the extent to which the people can be knowledgeable um, expositors of scripture. And she publishes her catechism as a way of sort of responding to this male minister. Carrie takes the catechetical form and uses it as the basis, as you suggest, to make this really sort of profound um, and far-reaching sort of intervention in contemporary religious um, discussion. I mean, a lot of people are discussing revelation in the 16, late 1640s, as you know, and she's right in there and she sees her catechetical training as um, sort of providing the basis for her to do that. You know, and I think some ministers, so, and interestingly with Carrie, um, she's the only one of the catechists I discuss who was actually responded to in print. it's an anonymous uh, response, but it seems like it was written by a sort of um, mainstream theologian. And his response to her is interesting because he does sort of in passing say, oh, this woman minister, you know, who does she think she is? But the majority of his attack or of his uh, is against her not being educated properly. Right. It's against her using this home based training. To sort of tackle these questions, she doesn't have the proper training to talk about these things. And one of the, he just he focuses on the fact that she mistransposed she tra- transposes a date incorrectly, hmm. and he says that's evidence of the orality of her training, and she's not trained you know sort of properly. Therefore, she has no basis to speak. So it's an interesting moment in which they are precisely sort of foregrounding. I mean, that response foregrounds the extent to which the minister is recognizing that this home-based training has encouraged people to speak in a public forum and trying to sort of clamp it down.
1: So catechism designed to undergird religious consensus actually ends up undermining it in some remarkable ways.
0: I I think that's true. It's a fascinating
1: book, Paula. We could talk for ages about it, and and hopefully we'll get another chance to do that sometime. Uh, But for now, let me say thanks. Uh, It's been great to talk to you about the book. Before we wind up, could you tell us what you hope to work on next?
0: Well, I am increasingly interested... um, I have two possible projects, but probably what I'm going to do, as you can probably tell from my previous response, I'm increasingly interested in the Fifth Monarchists. Mm. And what I'm particularly interested in them is there's a lot of um, work being done within women's writing um, and the scholarship on women's writing about sort of, okay, you mentioned earlier, Crawford, the work of recovery, right? And and there's a lot of sort of self-reflection um, ref, within the community of people who work on women's writers about sort of have we recovered everybody that there is to recover? And then there's also, at the same time, this idea that, you know, I don't know if you saw um, there was an article in TLS sort of saying women's writing has sort of settled for this sort of in an exclusive focus on women as separate from men, they've sort of, we have sort of ghettoized ourselves so that we can't speak and participate within sort of mainstream discussions. And so one of the things I'm interested in working on the Fifth Monarchists is, as you mentioned, I think um, it is a movement which was incredibly open to women. You have Mary Carey, but then you also have a female prophet. And I like to think of her as a performance artist. Um, Anna Trapnell, hmm. who's giving prophecies from her bedroom that are very influential um, pe- with people like Vavasar Powell and sort of in the lo- in the London sort of underground, if you will. And I'm interested, but they are joined by and they are participating with all these other really interesting people. I mean, the other thing about the fifth monarchists, which I didn't mention, is that they're very interested in the question of Judaism hmm. and sort of uh, sort of and, and sort of going back to sort of early pre-Platonized Christianity, right? So you see a lot of people sort of learning Hebrew, trying to get back to that. But there are also always these people who are kind of on the margins. These are not sort of elite people. So you have women and you have sort of not really well educated or only partially educated men who are interested in this, who are nonetheless engaged in asking these very important scriptural and religious questions. So, In the next book, what I'd like to do is sort of think about both the role of women in the movement without sort of necessarily, I mean, my working hypothesis is, you know, what if they were just members of the movement, right? What if they weren't singled out because of their gender? What if they just, I mean, and there were moments, of course, where gender becomes important and to, to talk about those, um, but not necessarily, maybe that wasn't the most important aspect of their participation. So just to think through those sort of questions.
1: Fascinating. Well, I really can't wait to see that, Paula, when it comes out. Thank you. Thanks for your time today. Thanks for coming onto the show and talking about this wonderful book, Catechisms and Women's Writing in 17th Century England, recently published by Cambridge University Press. Thanks for your time and take care.
0: Oh, thank you, Crawford. Lovely talking to you.
1: And you too. And thanks to everyone else for listening in today. I'll see you next time on New Books and Christian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast.